If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's going to be such a great episode, everybody. I can't wait to share this with you. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm the author of several books in the Jesus Un series, including the most recently released Jesus Unforsaken. Um, which is all about penal substitution and the atonement and yada yada. So check that out. <laughs> and um, uh, I want to be sure I uh, give some time here for my co-hosts to introduce themselves. Uh, Katie, Matt, and Derek, say hi. Hey, everyone. This is Katie Valentine. Super excited about uh, this episode. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook group. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, and just jazzed to get into the topic today. Yeah, boy. I'm Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion and the Love Minus Religion blog on Patheos, and also the founder and host of the Forward Podcast in addition to this podcast here. So I'm excited because we're about to get parabolic once again. Let's get parabolic. But before we do, I am Matt DiStefano, the author of Heretic from the Blood of Abel and some other books. I can't remember which one. The only one I remember because it's doing so well because of you lovely listeners is the one that I helped, I helped contribute to. And Keith took all the credit because he edited it. It's Before You Lose Your Mind, Deconstructing Bad Theology in the Church, which means we're giving you good theology, folks. We've been talking about this for a while, super stoked on how well the book is doing. The price, like we said, it's not a sales price, 99 cents on Kindle, $9.99 in paperback, and we couldn't be happier with the feedback we're getting. So go check it out. Uh, we would love if you did that. And excited, again, for... Um, is this is this the second to last parable uh, episode? Yeah, we're doing yes, that. Yes, All right. this, this is the penultimate, as they say. Penultimate. The penultimate. So, well, let me let me tell you, let me tell you that there is a way that you could connect with these heretics on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast by exercising finger dexterity and dialing two four zero three four three seven three seven nine. Once again. Two four zero three four three seven three seven nine, and roll that beautiful voicemail footage. Hey, heretics! Uh, this is Mike from Rolling Meadows, Illinois. I'm uh, kind of just learning about Christianity uh, in my. I think I'm thirty-seven, and. Uh, I had a question for you guys. It would be what translation of the Bible, you know, specifically the New Testament, do you guys think is the most accurate? Um, you know, I know in early episodes, Matt, you would, you would talk about like the, the Greek word and like really try to like translate the ancient Greek word when you guys were talking about certain things. And uh, I just want to know what each of you think is the, yeah, the most accurate, the closest. You know, if I were to read it, the closest to me understanding uh, what Jesus actually said. Thank you very much, and have a nice day. Yeah, all right. Man, thanks, Mike, for bringing the energy. Love that. Thank you for that question in all seriousness. Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, I'm curious too, because I, I know what I think, but I don't really know for sure what everybody else would, how they would answer this question. Um, it's no secret that I am a huge fanboy for David Bentley Hart, and he has a brand new translation, uh, from Yale Press of the New Testament. It's called, it's just called a translation of the New Testament, and it's a painfully literal, uh, translation where he tried to go in as uh, as much as he could and make it as literal as possible. Even, and, and even also he wanted to show um, for example, how the Greek in different books, if some are, some, some of the Greek is really good and some of it's really kind of, uh, amateurish and, you know, clunky. And so if the, if the Greek was clunky, the English is clunky. Like he kind of tries to show you as much as possible for those of you who don't read or read Greek like me. Um, 
to give you more of a, as much as you can an idea of not just the the words themselves and what they mean, but the style itself uh, of the language. And um, I've loved it. I've loved going back to to read the New Testament. I, it's all I read now. Like I, I don't even pull out my other Bibles anymore uh, when I'm reading the New Testament. It's pretty much straight from the David Bentley Hart New Testament translation. So that's my recommendation. I, I pretty much use the NRSV um, for like when I cite in books, um, just because it's from from what I understand, it's fairly accurate but still readable. Um, there are things that are more along the lines of David Bentley Hart's translation, like Young's literal translation. It's very clunky and almost unreadable, but it is almost like trying to do as accurate to the clunkiness of some of the Greek. But um, I mean, I don't, I don't really care what translation to use. It, it to me, it doesn't really matter. I mean, some of them, they're, they're, a lot of them are going to have biases. Like the NIV has biases. They add some words in there um, yes. to, to to fit their. Their theology and a lot of a lot of translations are are going to do that. I love the poetry of King James. I think it's um you know I think it's 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 like um it's more of an art piece and it gets some things right. But I mean the King James only people are ludicrous. But <laughs> that goes without saying. So I mean you know I don't know. I like the NRSV. We used to give away NRSVs on the Heretic Happy Hour, if you guys remember back in the day. Remember that? Oh, those were the days, man. Those were the I days. Love, I love that. Oh, my God. Who the hell <laughs> Obviously, no one. <laughs> I'm not our producer. I'm going to be really, really short that I rarely open the Bible these days, but when I do, I use the mirror translation by Francois Dutrois. Yeah, I'm curious about that one. People have recommended it to me, and I've been... I've been I've been tempted to pick it up. Given a temptation. Why do you use that one, Derek? Uh, because I just like Francois's rendering of it. Okay. I, you know, I, I, it basically, the, the Bible as a book means absolutely zero to me now. So uh, whenever I'm picking it up, it's pretty much for either the show or trying to help somebody get past the sticking point. So that's me. Your mileage may vary. So I have um, a very technical recommendation, and I'm going to give what I hope is a short but understandable uh, overview on the importance of translation. So I also recommend the NRSV, um, partly because it's done by committee. So translations that are done by an individual, I think, should be consulted. But ones that are done by large groups of people have um, vetting. And so I always recommend um, done by committee uh despite uh, committees, you know, uh, we all know how committees can work, but um, they bring in top people that are um, know what it's like to deal with a lot of translations. No matter what translation you choose, you want to choose one using the most modern technology that you possibly can. What does this mean? This means that in the New Testament alone, we have over 5,000 manuscripts that are ancient. The King James Version consulted six manuscripts. Out of the, they didn't have all 5,000 available. We have a lot more available now, and we now have them digitally, which obviously people back in 1600, whatever it was, 11 or 9 or something like that, didn't have. But none of those manuscripts agree fully or wholly in the exact wording of the New Testament. Some are the size of a postage stamp, some are a page long, some are several books long. A few have what we now call the entire New Testament, all 27 books. None of them agree fully. Any Bible that you read, absolutely any Bible that you read is an addition, E-D-I-T-I-O-N. It's an addition brought together from all 5,000 manuscripts. So you want a Bible that uses as access to all of those manuscripts and compiles them. The NRSV isn't perfect. Um, in fact, it translates my, the key verse that I wrote my dissertation on incorrectly. Um, so I would, I would offer them a correction the next time they get around to that, uh, for that verse. But, um, the NRSV uses all of those and I think has fewer gender biases than some of the other translations. Um, so that's my recommendation. I think the ESV, um, the NIV, they're all good. As far as reading the actual words of Jesus, it's, we're getting as best as we can. Just know that the English edition is coming from a compilation of a whole lot of manuscripts with nuanced differences. Lesson over. That's good. Thank you. Welcome to Katie's Tech Talk. Thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to uh, put all of that into good work. So did that make sense? Was that too boring? Have no, um, no, listeners, cool. have you tuned out? Okay. No, no it's, it's Bible, Bible nerd stuff. It's great. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking, Katie, I was thinking um, there, there was a reference. I'm, I'm not sure this is the exact one. And, and, and obviously, when it comes to translations, there are so many different ones out there who that approach the, the translation process from different, so they have sort of different goals or purposes. And as you said, the majority of most of the ones that are out there are by committee uh, or by you know, groups of people who do these things, right? Um, but uh, I mean, again, Bentley Hart is is biased, of course, because he is a single person doing his own personal one. So I'll you know, take that with a grain of salt. But he says he, in, in his introduction, he, he makes points about the fact that um, some of the uh, translations in the past that have been by sort of groups of people, uh, I think he says something like, in the end, even the most conscientious translations tend at certain cr- cr- crucial junctures to lose, use language determined as much by a theological and dogmatic tradition as by the plain meaning of the words on the page. And in some extreme cases, Doctrinal or theological or moral ideologies drive translators to distort the text to a discreditable degree. And he's not, I don't, other than the NIV, he's not a fan of that. Um, he doesn't really call many of them out, uh, by name. But I mean, you're, I guess I, I would also then say because of those kinds of things, I don't know that I feel like there is sort of like a perfect translation. Cause even reading David Bentley Hart, there are sometimes I'm reading some some things in there and, and I'll read a passage and I'm like, well, I kind of don't like that either. And I, you know, I, and I'm wondering why did he choose to do it that way? And, you know, I think everybody is going to be at some point not 100 percent happy with any translation unless you do your own. Yeah, but, a uh, translation is an interpretation. Yeah, it's an interpretation. Yeah. So I, I definitely recommend consulting many. Of course, listeners, if you want to learn Greek, just mm. email. We can have a Greek 101 lesson. <laughs> hey, before we move on, I got to make it. I got to make a point here. I, I have to say that David Bentley Hart is to Keith Giles what Mary Magdalene was to Jamal Javanji. If that, if that, I, I think. That, I'm sorry. Are the are the wedding announcements? Did that need to be said? Uh, I think. I no. think anyone, everyone knows. It's that. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. By now, I think you figured it out. Yeah. All right. So I hope this uh, gives uh, our wonderful caller with an awesome question a few options. Uh, You have several options here. And uh, should we go on to our fabulous, wonderful new heretic of the week? It's the heretic of the week. My name is Nicole Foster, and people call me a heretic because I love the Old Testament. And I believe that God works mightily on the outside of the church. Ooh, hi. Hi, I got too enthused before our greeting you with our, our usual enthusiasm. Nicole, and we should say recently minted Dr. Foster. Ooh, yeah. Yes. Welcome. The doctor is uh, thank you. That's exactly thank you. right. Nicole's going to tell us all about her, her recent studies and forays into this doctorate that she has. So welcome, Nicole. We're so excited. Tell us a little more. You gave us such a juicy beginning on why some people might call you a heretic. Tell us more about that. <laughs> well, um, first off, I, I guess I should say that, um, you know, some people laugh at me like, you did a doctorate of ministry or, or you're ordained? Like, how how can that be? Um, so I have an affinity for the Old Testament, which many Christians do not take kindly to, uh, particularly the church. Um, and uh, I have a strong belief in, in knowing uh, that God moves mightily outside of the institutional church. Um, and so actually my doctoral thesis was on that, was on how um, God moves on social media and outside of, you know, the one-way conversation from the pulpit and um, how there was two-way conversation going on out in the world uh, with God involved. So that's why I get called a heretic. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like I agree with you. I I, I love that whole idea because like, um, it sounds like what you're saying, I don't want words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is, in a way, the canon isn't closed because the Spirit of God is still speaking, still moving, still sort of inspiring 
many different voices, many different ways, whether that's conversations or music or art or experience or through other people and other relationships that God is, um, is still speaking to us, right? It's not something that's old and shut down and closed and, you know, we're done. Right. I mean, he's an active living God. Um, so, you know, my take on it always was, well, um, you know, I, I come into some churches where um, they don't quite believe, and I, I don't want to say believe in it as an evangelical, in an evangelical way at all, um, but that it's more of um, just kind of an idea. And it's just like, well, what the hell are you doing there? Like, what, where, why, are you, why, are you, what, why are you here if you, you know, or why do you say that you're a Christian if you don't believe that God is doing something that's active? Um, you know, if God wasn't alive or active to me, I wouldn't be, you know, what's the point? <laughs> but what's the point? Um, so, uh, yes, I believe God is very active in the lives of people and the lives of people that many want to call heathens and the lives of people, um, that, uh, think they are, uh, have reached the top in spirituality and they are deceived. Um, there's always more. <laughs> so I want to know what that a, top looks like. I want to be there. <laughs> yeah, you're my kind of heretic, I gotta yeah. say. I, I have a question, Nicole. What, what was your doctoral <laughs> dissertation on? So it's called the Hippie Theologian. It was on my online community um, of ministry. Um, and it started, it's, I can't believe I'm saying this. I feel free to say this now. It started because I lost, I lost the pulpit. Uh, I, I got uh, removed from uh, uh, a position because uh, they decided to put a young white male ahead of me who had not finished his credentials. They wanted me to train him to, uh, go through the ordination process, but not, not me. And here I was a doctorate student. Um, Damn. And so I kept speaking up every day. <laughs> every day. <laughs> like they got sick of that. And so, um, <sighs> so I was like, I still, I just had still like bubbling up inside of me. Like I've still got to talk about how great God is and how um, particularly he moves in the old Testament, which is not like particularly in the Episcopal world uh, where I was coming out of. Um, so I just started doing it on social media, started talking about uh, different parts of scripture, what they meant um, in the Old Testament and um, how God was very much active. And uh, if you feel on the outside, you know, of things and you're probably right where you need to be. So um, it just got started with that. And the discussions got started. Um, and as, as Derek knows, it's a <laughs> it's a wild forum. I mean, I get cussed out quite a bit. And that's, that's great. That's all yeah, right. Every now and then I, I try to come in with some air support and cuss people out for yes. you. You know, I, 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 I do, I yes, do my, I do my part, you know, cause you, you're my butt, you know, so, I'm telling you, he's all here's, here's, here, here's the reason why I asked you that, Nicole, is because you said, uh, you, you talk about God being an active God and that the canon being open. So I would say that your dissertation, like Katie's dissertation, and uh, and uh, and and Keith's books, I would say that they are too part of the canon of Scripture. They are part of the living epistle. I don't think that the Bible is all encompassing. I think that the Bible is just the springboard. We haven't even gotten to the deep end of the pool. Wow, I like that. I like that kind of concept of springboard. Um, that's a that's really helpful, Derek. Um, Nicole, I'm curious, who's your, like, tell us an Old Testament story maybe that you love or that gets overlooked. Cause I, I have, I'm a new, I'm in the New Testament kind of world. Um, that's where my scholarship is, but I love the Old Testament. It was so hard for me to choose between the two, where to focus, because like the older the stuff is, the more I tend to like, the more older and obscure, the more fun I think it is to puzzle it out. <laughs> well, I think, um, one, one, I guess, aspect of scripture to me that I didn't realize until my doctorate program, until I, was, I ha had to do an assignment, um, just the way in the Old Testament, God, if you look at his covenants that he institutes, it's always through somebody who has a major handicap, a major handicap. Um, whether it be Sarah, I mean, girl, she, I mean, she can, <laughs> she cannot, like, um, whether it be through Jacob, um, who gets, you know, his hip kicked in, but some, some translations are he got his manhood squashed. And so how, by this angel, so how, how is he going to have kids? How is he going to make you limp? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, how's he gonna have you know, yeah. as numerous as the you know stars of heaven in the, the sand? Um, how is that possible? Or, you know, even with uh Leah, who can't see right, or, or or Rachel, who seems to be getting high on mandrakes. I mean, these are flawed people. Abraham <laughs> Abraham, who's a rapist? He I mean, you know, Hagar is is um Islamic tradition has Hagar as uh, a princess that was kidnapped to war by Pharaoh. Um, and she ends up uh, being given to Abraham. You know, this is just kind of Islamic tradition. Given to Abraham, uh, kind of as a sorry, I shouldn't have come towards Sarah. I didn't know she was your wife. Um, and so Hagar, um, and she's the first person to name God in scripture. And here she is having uh, a nation, you know, the nation, the 12, the 12 I guess, tribes of Arabia. And so, um, you've got all these flawed people, these hurt people, um, these destructive people that God is choosing to use. Um, you know, you would think he would use mostly priests in the temple. Not, not, no. <laughs> and, you know, his prophets are just weird, just weird ass people. I mean, just weird. Um, and God is talking through them. This is great stuff. I mean, it just gives us hope that, man, God's going to use these people. Lord, I sh- please give me this. <laughs> yeah, I love that the Old Testament doesn't cover up people's foibles, no. right? We have real people, yeah. <laughs> oh, I do have one question. Yes, this, right? The hippie theologian. How did you come by that moniker? Oh, yeah, like, I want to know that, that too. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to confess, y'all, right now I'm struggling with this. Like, <laughs> outgrown this name? Or I don't, like, I don't know, but like, it's true of me. I mean, my friend and my mom kind of put their heads together. Was like, because I get called a hippie all the time by my friends because I make organic soap. I think that I'm some kind of herbalist, like trying to make tea or you know some kind of concoction to heal somebody, or you know, like, do you smoke weed? I do not. Do you smoke? I do okay, I, I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> We're going down. We're going down the checklist to see if you're qualified yeah. for your hippie card. Know, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm trying to go down the checklist. You know, I spend all my. I spend as much time as I can outside. I do yoga. I, I swim. I okay. fish. I, I. That's good. Anything outside. I camp. Hike. So they call me that. I use essential oils for perfume. I mean. You know what? I think you're okay. I think you. I checked off enough things on the list here. Yeah. I think you qualify as a. I, yeah, yeah. You have a. You're card carrying. Yeah. I think it's okay. <laughs> yep. Yes. I love the name actually. Like that it caught my attention. Oh, so yeah. yeah. You have a podcast? Yeah, that, you have a, you that's have, what you made me join the group. Oh yeah. yeah. Theologian. I'm like, hell yeah, this is <laughs> this is my my kind of spot. Right, so you have a you have a podcast and a community uh built around that idea? Yeah, so it's on Facebook and then I have a Roku channel, um, and then a YouTube channel. Um and and I'm I'm and I'm in the midst of kind of praying and discerning what to do next with it. Um, you know, just a confession, and this probably, you know, sounds bad, but like, you know, tour, especially from January to now, I had been working on my thesis so hard. I did like years work with work in a few months. Um, I got, and, and maybe the pandemic too, I got a little tired of just always arguing with people online and just, it was wearing me out. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> Let me just do a little lesson and put it out there and then go to bed and not go to bed pissed yeah. off because, you know, I got cussed out for the fourth time today. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. I still want to have those discussions. I still want to, um, you know, amp it up when I can. Uh, and um, But yeah, we talk about everything, everything um, under the sun on there from race to... Um, uh, the group itself, I can't really take credit for it. The group itself is is an, a force to be reckoned with. I mean, <laughs> some guy, some teacher in Indiana was, you know, got on there and was saying how black and Hispanic kids are just horrible people and couldn't really be Christians. And I didn't really have to say much. And folks were calling that school. You know, they're getting ready to call the yeah. school and get, uh, get him fired. <laughs> Your community yeah. took care of it. Yeah, Whoa. yeah, it, yeah. it was, yeah. it was. You know, cancer people like to say, "Well, can- cancer cultures." Uh, it's it's accountability culture, and That's so right. yeah, they right. were making sure that he did not they did not want him over black and brown students anymore. 
Mm-hmm. Was he a t- and he was a teacher? Uh-huh. Or is, is, was, was, hopefully. Yikes. <laughs> that is scary. Yeah, exactly right. You you do have freedom of speech. The thing is, there are consequences to those yeah. things that you say. So, yeah. Really, especially for minors, you know, that you're over minors like that. You know, we, we as adults, we can't have that. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I can't take credit for that. I, I actually learn from them, you know, learn people's stories and learn how. Um, and th- there's a lot of ex-theologians on there. There's a lot of there's a lot of bish. There's quite a few bishops. They never say anything. Um, mm-hmm. There's quite a few priests of all and pastors of all denominations that will message me saying, I can't comment. <laughs> 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 but this is what I think is I agree with this or that or the other. I'm like, okay, yeah. I got you. I, I, I get it. I, I used to be, you know, in your position. So, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, man, Nicole, this is awesome. Uh, if anybody would like to, you know, kind of learn more about you or maybe join that group or find just anything else that you're involved with or, or if there's anything exciting that you're you're working on that you want people to know about um let us know what are those things how can people find you how can people um kind of follow what you what you're doing sure i mean you can email me at nicole at the hippie theologian.com or um you can just get on my facebook either my facebook or the hippie theologian facebook page instagram tiktok whatever just message me uh, I message back, um, and you know, go to the website, um, hippytheologian.com and, um, yeah, I'll, I'll love to chat with people. I will chat away. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. This is such a treat. Thanks yeah, for thanks having for me. I was yeah. having so fun. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Cool. How fun was that to talk to Nicole? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Was it was it fun? Did you guys have fun? Did everyone have fun? Yeah. It was. There was something something about that interview that was probably the best, one of the best ones we've ever done. I don't know what it was, but man, it was just so much better. And you know, she before we started, Matt, she was like, Where is Matt? That's the whole reason I showed up today. You guys are assholes. I think she was wondering where you were. I don't think that happened. <laughs> no, my my favorite part was that Nicole goes from this evangelical church to like a Coptic Orthodox church and back again. So she yeah. she circled the whole wagon of uh, Christian denomination. There was an Anglican in there somewhere, right? Somewhere yeah, along the way. Now she's Anglican. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Well, um, so listeners, if you've enjoyed this particular interview, which of course you have, uh, and all of our interviews, um, we'd love to invite you to do something um, really special right now while you're continuing to listen as we start to talk about our next topic. And that's to go to iTunes and rate us. It really helps get the word out, algorithms, all of that. It takes two seconds. All you have to do is click the little star. And of course, we want you to give it five stars out of five stars if you're loving what we're doing. And you get a special star in your Revelation crown if you also leave a written review. Um, it really helps the podcast soar to new heights, helps us get our heresy out there to the masses. So we love it if you can do that for us. Oh, and now, yeah. yeah. And now we are turning to our topic of the week, and we are getting into our next to last, maybe, parable. The parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. Which is what? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which I, I can't speak on because I don't have any talent, so uh, I can't okay. talk today. No, we got it. We have to say this before we, before we get into this, right? Arr, bars of gold, matey. Arr. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think one of the things that trips up a whole lot of, uh, especially probably American Christians, <clears throat> is that it's, it's the fact that it's the parable of the talents. And we tend to then just sort of assume that it's, oh, it's, you can sing or you can play guitar. No, it's not that. Or, yeah. It's not you, that. You, you're a ventriloquist or you do magic or whatever. No, 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 no. Oh. It, it, it's similar. It's similar to the way, uh, you know, like the British talk about their, their monetary system. They, they use pounds and it would be like misunderstanding like, oh, if someone's talking about pounds, oh, you're talking about things that weigh this much. Like, no, that's not, it's not that. It's the same word, but it's referring to uh, a measure of like money, right? A, a denomination of money. So, yeah. Don't, don't assume that this is a parable of using your talents for the Lord, brother. So, so yet another an, an, another economic parable. As yes. Katie, Katie, you pointed out, I don't know if it was last episode or the one before, how, what the percentage is on, on yeah, economic 60%. parables. 60%. Yeah, it's not me, it's Jesus. 
Blame, oh. blame Jesus. I was trying to give you some credit. You're always, it's not me, brother. It's the Holy Spirit through me. It's not me. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Oh, I hate that. This is in Matthew 25, uh, 14 through 30. Yeah, 14 through 30 for anyone that wants to follow along. At home. Yes. So remind us, I guess, someone briefly, what the hell is this parable about? What it, What's it all about? Like, what's the story? Can someone just summarize the story? What happens? What happens? There's a there's a slave, right? There are well, three there's, a, there's a master. There's, there's a, master. a master. There's a master. A master. master with, there's a master. Massa with, with three Massa. slaves. One of them gets uh, what is it? Five, five yeah. talents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two talents and one talent. Yeah. Correct. And the uh, the the first one invested in the in the in the market in the real estate. He made he bank. Some, he, he made bank. He doubled his profit. Number two doubled his profit, and the third guy buried it, and he got thrown into hell. Did I get pretty it right? Much, he gets his ass kicked pretty much, yeah. <laughs> he gets that, chastised strongly. He, he gets thrown into outer darkness. Okay, yeah, there he, we go. Yeah. And he's told that if you had just, you, I think he's called you, he's rebuked for being a lazy servant, a lazy slave. Yeah. And if you had just taken that money and put it in the bank, then the master could have made, you know, at least an interest on the money. But you didn't even do that, damn it. You just dug a hole. And because of that, you're out of here. And then he took that talent and gave it to the guy who had five. How's that for fairness? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the trauma of the of the parable. Um, I just like it, the conventional interpretation just um, makes my skin crawl around this, right? So like the I think like Keith was saying that some of the trauma is like that. Um, if we're not using our um, talents and gifts for the Lord, if we're not multiplying those and um, at the extreme end, like bringing in new souls for Christ, uh, we're burying, like the metaphor is just so good with our English word talent, right? Like we're literally burying our talent. Um, yeah. We're not serving at the at the highest level. So it kind of has this always pressuring people to do more, do more, be more, give more, um, has a lot of ramifications for a lot of different things. There's... Um, I think for women, this has a really gendered ramification because like women are always pressured to um, always give more and more and more and more and never think about themselves. And this this kind of parable can exploit that, but it has a lot of, of um, across the genders, it has uh, lots of ways that it can be really damaging. Yeah, absolutely. Am I on the money? Anyone else heard yep. this? No, yeah, I mean, it, interpretation. It, it definitely, we always, we always kind of see the problems Katie, you bring them up a lot, like the problems with some of the parables. And this one, I mean, right out the gate, like you've got the, it, it, does it start with the kingdom of God is like? No, it doesn't. Uh, this is, it happens in a it, series of parables. Yeah, but start, it follows one that does. It's like, well, it starts, so it's, it's a good question. So let's go back, like chapter 24. Um, it's, so this is at the very end of the gospel of Matthew. It's really shortly before Jesus trial. Um, and so there's like the destruction of the temple is foretold. There's some signs of the like end of time, stuff like that. Um, and then it starts with the lesson of the fig tree, not really a parable, but kind of in that vein. Um, and then we have faith, the parable of the faithful and unfaithful slave, the parable of the bridesmaids, and then this one, the parable of the talents. And then after that, the all more judgment talk. So it never, it never really, it's just a long dialogue that's like two chapters long with very little break. Just story after story after judgment after judgment after story. Yeah, but the, the problem I see is that um, don't a lot of people tend to see the master as God? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a part of... The uh, slave you, owner? Yes, the, the slave, slave owner is God. The people God. The slave owner is God. Slaves like... And, 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 right, and let, me right right let me say this. Let me say this. As the descendant, <laughs> as the descendant of slaves... <laughs> That, that basically this sets God up to be the great plantation owner, which is a, a, a absolutely pointed justification of slavery. And, and I also see it as part of the genesis of the Protestant work ethic, because this is how wage slaves are born. In other words, we, all of our work is not for our own gain, but it's for the gain of the master. So since God sets up leaders, right? And so we're supposed to be beholden to the leaders who God sets up. This parable is a great lever of control and manipulation for uh, capitalism. That it, it rings so 
true for me, Derek, just uh, the way that that's kind of set up. And the I think it it doesn't go without saying, but it seems um, resonant to me that the two enslaved people who doubled their talents, who, who, who made money off of their kind of investment, um, they don't necessarily get to keep that. No, right? no, no it, goes, more, it goes to him. It more than likely, I mean, um, it like some some enslaved people could make their own money and keep it and use it, but technically, it still all belongs to the master. Well, this is why the master is so pissed off. It's because yeah. it's my money, and I expected to come back and get extra. Like my, I made money because I gave it to you guys, and your job was to increase my wealth. So when I get back, I have more money. And then he's pissed because the one guy did not increase it at all. He left it exactly the same. So yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's almost it's almost like it's like, and why? But why does the the third guy not invest the money? Because he's afraid of the master. Because he's like, you're an right. asshole. And, and then the master's <laughs> like, the master yeah, gets pissed an and treats him like an asshole. And it's like, yeah, well, like yeah, I told you, <laughs> you know, he yeah, comes I mean, out and says, you know, yeah. that I'm an austere man. Yeah, that's what the that's what the master says to to the servant. You know that I'm an austere man, so you know what my expectation is, right? So so basically, he's this guy is set up for failure from the beginning because he only he he sees what the other guys have, but he only gets a fraction of what they get, and he's like, okay, I need to make sure I don't lose this shit. Right, right, and and it's, so what he does is he just okay. I'm going to bury it so nobody can rob me, nobody can steal it from me, and then when when the master comes back, I'll give him back what he had. Now, that's a good point too. Is that yeah? In, in many ways, that final guy, that third servant who was only given one. If you think about it, he has a much greater risk. Like if he invests that one and loses it, now he's got shit. He's got nothing, right? He lost everything. Whereas if the guy with five invested and loses one, well, he still got four, right? And so, yeah, this, there's, there's way more pressure and, and much more of a risk factor for the guy who's only got one because he's only got one, man. You lose that, you're dead. So you can well, understand, you can like sympathize. Like, of course he's scared because he knows his, 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 who his master is. You know, as we're talking about economics, and don't worry, listeners, we're going to give you some alternates. It's not going to all be um, how horrible this parable is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's it's just stuff coming. It's, right. It's, it's only horrible with this particular interpretation where the master is God and we're all the uh, the enslaved people. Um, but the talents, we're not just talking about coins here. So a talent was a huge sum of money. Uh, so it's not one coin. Gonna, Got it. No, okay. no, it's not one coin. I'm, Got it. I, I would doubt it. Um, but a, a denarii was a day's, like a day's labor for an average kind of worker um, in this ancient world. And it took 6,000 denarii to make one talent. Woo. So 6,000 days of work mm. in order to have one talent. So five talents is an astronomical sum, uh, sum especially for a like day laborer um, for the kind of average people that Jesus was uh, ministering to. So they hear a talent. So, I mean, it's like, you know, they're having, um, they're having like Amazon kind of money here, right? Like really, really, we're talking millionaire, billionaire kind of status money that these enslaved people are given. So if the function of parables is to shock, you know, this is kind of a shocking amount of money. And so it's it, like, Keith, I like what you say, like he only has the one talent, but it's still a shitload of money. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and so there's also <laughs> like, he doesn't, he doesn't take any of it um, to invest either. Um, and I can't blame him because like, the, like Derek was saying, um, the master, I mean, yeah, he's, he's very harsh. And in verse 24, the enslaved person says, I knew you were, he critiques him so strongly. I knew you were a harsh master, reaping what you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. I mean, he can't say it more plainly. Yeah. I think, too, I think it's a yeah. great idea. You're not losing any money if you bury it. Yeah. 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 Maybe it'll be inflation and maybe it'll be worth more. Yeah. So let's talk about some alternate ways of reading this, because as, as you said, Katie, as we're reading it now, which is kind of the way I've only been told to read it my whole life growing up in church from the pulpit, um, it is kind of like not I'm not very comfortable with this. I'm not I don't really like what I'm hearing and seeing here. And if, if, uh, if that's the way to read it, but the good news is there are some alternate ways of reading this that most of us haven't seen. 
uh, which actually shed some really interesting light on this parable and make it come alive in some really interesting ways. So let's let's talk about that. Well, first off, I don't see God in any of it. I don't see. I don't see like an. I'm not making. I'm not making an analogy between God. If if anything, if anything, Jesus would stand with the with the the one who yeah. was given one. And got kicked out and thrown yeah. where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that how it ends? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dark, exactly right. weeping, so if, if Jesus yeah. is going to be with anyone, he's going to be. He's either going to be that dude or he's going to be with that dude. But I don't see God as an, an analogous to the slave master at all. Yeah. So yeah. Well, so let's, let's start, talk I'll about start right with that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So let's talk about this because I think what we're what we're talking about is, um an understanding of some of these parables and teachings of Jesus, which assumes that he's actually in favor of this, you know, master slave economic system. And what he's saying is, this is really great guys. Isn't how learn, let's learn some good lessons from this very oppressive system. Whereas I, I kind of think uh, what's more interesting is to say that maybe Jesus is uh, critiquing those systems in ways or we're rebuking and even rebuking. Rebuking. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and um and maybe shedding a very necessary light on the injustices of that system, uh, and that is very interesting to me to look at it from that direction. So th- th- apparently, that is one of the ways that we can look at it. Is there is there some scholarship on that, Katie? Indeed, um, yeah, and I think that this is also reflecting um, the fear and the terror that many poor people in the ancient world lived with. Um, especially enslaved people. So as uh, Christians have tended to downplay the harshness of the Roman Empire, especially because Christians were were complicit in uh, in slave owning until 18, uh, that's in the United States until 1865 and the rest of the world until just about 100 years before that. Um, and so Christians have, t- especially white Christians, have tended to say, oh, slavery wasn't so harsh in the ancient world, being poor wasn't so harsh. Um, But we know that's not true. So I'll just give a couple of examples. And this is um, an area where I probably know too much. Um, But for instance, an enslaved person's testimony was not valid in the Roman Empire unless it was given under torture. Because it was assumed that an enslaved person could not be trustworthy or honest. They would lie. Yeah. That they would lie or just not have the sort of moral fortitude in order to be able to tell the truth unless they were being tortured. Um, so that, that's just one example. There's um, a little bit of critique in the ancient world about the sort of casual violence that many slaves uh, and slave people faced. Um, we, we know it was uh, rampant. And one of the definitions of enslavement that... Um, rings true to me is that the enslaved person does not have control over their own body. Their own body is the focus of other people's violence and anger. And we certainly see that in this particular parable. Um, So no, I don't want to see God as the master, nor do I. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, as far as scholarship, I think there has been some scholarship around, um, especially by like William Herzog is someone I have in mind. Um, And I think other like liberation theologians too, like Paulo Freire, um, who talk about that this is maybe a critique against, yeah, the system that's producing this kind of violence in the ancient world and the people that had to live with it, which were the people that Jesus was in ministry to. Yeah. And so then, then instead, instead of it being uh, a parable uh, praising this exploitive economic system, um, then it's possible then what's actually happening is it's that the one that received the one talent um, is actually sort of rebuking the master and saying, hey, it isn't cool that you, uh, you know, reap where you don't sow. It isn't cool uh, that, you know, that you, you earn money this way and you do so exploiting your, your slaves this way and, and that you're so harsh with them. And that, that sort of like he stands up to the master he sort of call, speaks truth to power, and he pays the price for it, um, by the way, like Jesus does, right? This is very interesting how we went in one of the other episodes, we talked about the, um, the wedding banquet and how Jesus is the man who is silent, who the master beats and tortures and casts outside into the outer darkness where, you know, the weeping and gnashing of teeth and all that stuff. And it's, that is Jesus who's the one suffering at the hands of the rich master. And I think it's very, very similar. 
to read this parable the same way. That if there's any way, if there's a, any Christ-like figure in this parable, it is the one who had the one talent and said, you know what? I don't participate. I'm not going to participate in this system. I'm going to bury it in the ground. I'm not participating in this system at all. And when the master comes back, I'm just going to tell him, yeah, I don't think it's cool that you're doing this. You know, Keith, that's I think that's a, really, that's a really great perspective. And where I'm going with this is that you hear Protestant evangelicals talking about how Jesus was not a socialist, right? <laughs> but, but Jesus is clearly a socialist if you look at this from the standpoint of a rebuke against a, the system of slavery, which yeah. is a form of capitalism, and the system of, of usury or interest earning, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so basically, Jesus is giving a double entendre re- rebuke of the entire economic system that is the capitalism of the day. And, and so yeah. to your point, you're saying that this one guy says, Hey, fuck you guys. I'm not participating in this system. I'm going to bury this talent. Okay. You know what? That guy is, is, is the worker class. He's the proletariat, right? He's the guy that's saying, Hey, you know, enough's enough. I'm not going to play in this reindeer game. I'm going to take what I have and I'm just going to hide it. And, and, and whatever happens, happens. So I'll give it back to him the way I get it, right? And yeah. honestly, this this really, in my in my opinion, brings into stark relief the socialist Jesus. Well, and I'll say that you mentioned like it's like the guy saying "fuck you" to the slave master. What if? What if all the slaves would have said "fuck you"? I mean, that would have been like the more power, like the people coming together. It's almost like this one guy kind of becomes like the scapegoated one and the other ones kind of play into the system. I'm not blaming them for it, but the way to like, to, to quote, run the jewels, to kill your masters. And I don't mean violently is, is for all of them to come together and be like, no, we're not playing your game where you get to have us do the work to make you more money. Fuck your money. All of them together, all three slaves. That that would have been not a better parable, but if all of them would have came together, that's how, that's how you kind of subvert the whole system rather than just, Part of the uh, carrot on the end of the stick in the Roman Empire was that Romans routinely did grant freedom to enslaved people. And so part of the story was, if you're good and faithful, if you're obedient, if you do X, Y, or Z, one day you'll gain your freedom. So it was actually used as an incentive to help people kind of stay stay in their place um, as well. And so I like the interpretation. And um, you know that's where we see some of the exploitation, right? Because if someone... Um, would, if someone defies the system, they get punished more. But if they participate in the system, they, they may eventually gain their freedom. I mean, it's part of the insidiousness of, uh, of ancient enslavement. Um, but Ma- uh, Matt, I did find an answer to your question. Uh, I just had to read back a little bit. Um, so at the beginning of the chapter is when uh, we have the mention of the kingdom. So it's the kingdom of heaven will be like this. And then the bridesmaid story, the bridesmaid's parable. And directly after the bridesmaid's parable, we have, for it is, uh, for it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves. So if we want to kind of read that kingdom back into uh, this parable, which I think is totally possible, I think my question is, what is the kingdom of heaven like by the end of this parable with our interpretation? So I'm pondering. You know, another thing too is that it's like Jesus is is not issuing a rebuke against Rome per se, because Rome is not his audience in this particular case. So he's talking to to Jewish people and Jewish culture. He's speaking he's speaking a rebuke to his own people, and and that's another thing that I'm seeing in this because it would be easy to kind of. Uh, dump the load on Rome and say, well, this is just, you know, this is Jesus speaking to empire. No, this is, this is Jesus speaking to the, the Jewish people and their system and, and speaking to the corruption of it. I, I think that's a good point. I, I do think that Jesus is a reformer of Judaism. Absolutely. I see, I see Jesus as that someone who comes and is speaking 
truth to power within the, the uh, their own sort of cultural religious systems that have become oppressive. Um, and I think the more we can see that and notice that, the more we'll start to notice that Jesus is very critical of those who oppress the poor. Um, it's actually all through the Gospels. It's actually, when I, that's why I laughed, Derek, when you said that, you know, people want to say that Jesus wasn't a socialist. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, he wasn't a capitalist. And I, you should be noticing, you should be noticing all the places he's very, very critical of the rich. And he's very much, um, you know, in solidarity with the poor who are suffering. And I'll just want to, I just want to briefly mention one example of that. Um, like, for example, there's the very common, you know, the teaching of the widow's might. And, um, it's in the, it's, Luke 21, chapter uh, chapter 21, verse 1, the very beginning uh, of chapter 21 in Luke. And it says, you know, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting all their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also the certain poor widow putting in only two mites. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of these other rich people. For, for all of these gave out of their abundance, um, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Now, that is always kind of, in my, my growing up, that was always held up as this standard of, look, everybody, you want to be like this widow. We should all as aspire to be givers like this widow who's willing to just give everything to God, right? And it's used as a positive example. But part of the reason why I think we read it that way is the, is the way the chapters are broken. Because if you go to the end of Luke 20 and the very end of the previous chapter, so imagine there are no chapter breaks, okay? And then this is how it would have actually read immediately before that. It says, Jesus is saying to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love their greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best seats at the, at the feasts. And here it is, who devour widows' houses. And so he just finished rebuking the Jewish leaders who, with their, you know, imposing all of this financial hardship, all these tithes and offerings that they demanded from the people that they give, that they're devouring the homes of widows. And then the very next verse is Jesus saying, look at that widow over there. She's given more than all these rich people because she gave everything she owned. But why did she do that? Because she's the victim of this oppressive system. Then now she's going to go home and starve to death and have no food to, to you know, nothing to feed her children. It's not a, it's not praising a system like that. It's actually rebuking it and saying, this is wrong. This is, this is evil. And we should, we should point this out. He was wanting to shine a light on how, how unfair this is and how unjust this is. And I think we tend to read a lot of things like that with Jesus, where we assume Jesus is in favor of this sort of free market capitalism or something. Uh, when he's actually really trying to point out these injustices and, and rebuke those that are oppressing the poor. Man, so, somebody cue up the organ and see sharp here. Hallelujah. <laughs> so then what is the kingdom of heaven like? Based on this new yeah. reading of the of these parables, you mean? Yeah, the like in the Matthew 25, verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. What is the this? I'm kind of curious if we... If there is an answer to that, or many answers. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I feel like we first, I'll just speak for myself. I don't know how to answer that because I feel like I need to go back and reread all these parables with a new, a new lens. I mean, the very first one you're talking about, he says the kingdom of God is like this. And he talks about the, the parable of the 10 virgins. And we haven't covered that yet, so I don't want to spoil anything. But Matthew Cortman, by the way, has an, an incredible teaching on the, the 10 virgins that does the same thing we're doing, that flips it on its head and, and suddenly makes it not what I thought it was about. So I feel like I almost need to go through all these parables one more time. And I feel like I don't really understand them. I think I used to think I did, but now I'm questioning that. And I think I'm not seeing what I'm supposed to be seeing in most of these parables. So to be honest, that's a great question. And I, I think I could honestly say, I don't know, and I, but I want to. I feel you know, like I, I need can to say go back this, and, yeah. that the kingdom of God is not like what we thought it was. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do well, agree I, I, with that. I can say that with great confidence. Yes. I mean, I, I see no difference between the sacred space and the secular space. Everything is the kingdom of God. I, I just go, I go back to the fact that like the kingdom of God has suffered violence. And why are they, why is this? Because of our systems. 
And that's in the midst of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's in the midst. It's within you. But at the same time, the kingdom of God suffers violence. The kingdom of God has an unfair system where a poor dude gets punished basically for not doing the right thing that the rich dude wanted him to do. And that's not fair. Um, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means when it comes to the kingdom of God, except that things are permitted in the kingdom of God that might not be God's desire. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think for um, my kind of working, uh, working interpretation here is that I think we have a series of parables that are how not to parables. Yeah. Um, There's this one, the rich man, like the rich man and Lazarus, um, the, the parables about the enslaved people, this horrific uh, parables in Luke 12, uh, again, about enslaved people. Um, And I think that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven is the heaven on earth. And and like Matt, I'm also not sort of binary or dualistic about this. Um, it is everywhere, I agree. But the kingdom of heaven is where the, these are not allowed to happen, where we're working towards the justice, that that, that such a thing could, could even happen at all. That it's, that it's even permissible that such a, um, such a thing be imagined in yeah. this way. Yeah. And so the kingdom of heaven is where these things are not um, we see that they are not of God. Yeah. The yeah. kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is where these parables that we used to, these really horrible scenarios are something we used to talk about, you know, like the or, kingdom or, of God. Yeah. Or just ways that we see it now with new eyes. Like I know it's until we, we I, I think this is right to say that, you know, there's sort of like this transformational thing that needs to happen in us so that we have new eyes to see these things. Because otherwise, if we're not thinking that way, if we're still thinking this old way, um, the way of the system of the world or whatever, um, then we're going to read them and just go, oh, I know what it means. Because we just assume we know what it means. Like we, I think we need to really have this sort of transformational, uh, undergo some of this kind of transformational process so that once we're changed, now suddenly we can read it in a way of like, to say, hey, this isn't fair to that guy. This wasn't good to put to treat someone this way, and to sort of is to sort of kind of maybe take on the heart of a loving God, a loving Father, who would say, "No, I don't want this. This isn't a good thing that happened in this story." But I think until we we can get to the place where we can see it from a new perspective, um, it's not really useful for us. Well, I think it it also invites me, I think parables, because they are somewhat timeless, it also invites me to see where it, where are these scenarios happening today, right? We still have enslaved people today. Human trafficking is a global problem. This level of violence happens all of the time. So it's also inviting me to, damn it, do something about that in my own mm-hmm. way, right? So Good it point. is also a, it's also issuing a challenge to me to not have blinders on. Uh, and it is very challenging for me to engage in that level of the world's problems. Um, I'm very um, empathic and empathetic, and I have to work really hard not to be sucked into that, into doing nothing. Um, so it's also inviting me into the challenge of continuing to be a the force in whatever small ways I can um, to create a new economy where this kind of bullshit doesn't happen. <laughs> I love it. A- amen to that. So we got, uh, we got one more parable after... Um... After well, this one episode, more episode. I'm not one sure. One more episode. Well, we don't yeah. want to spoil it, but we're, oh, we're okay. going to do something we're not different. Spoil it, but we're going to do something different. It's going to, it's going to, we're going to bring some fresh perspectives like we always do. That's right. Uh, but in the meantime, this has been a good episode. This has been a good episode, but um, I got to tell everyone about our website, heretichappyhour.com. We have a bookstore. We have a t-shirt slash hat shop, and we got some pillows. If that's your thing, if you like to adorn your home with pillows, but uh, I want to tell everyone about the the Heretic of the Week bookstore, which is at heretichappyhour.com. You can save fifteen percent off books from our former guests, like Rob Bell's Love Wins, like Brad Jerzak's Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. If you want to save money, you want to support the show, you want to get some good books, head on over to heretichappyhour.com, click the bookstore, and get it. Cool. And we'd love to also have you in our free, wonderful, awesome community of over 2,000 people on Facebook called Heresy After Hours. Let me give you a real life example of what happens in there. Um, Someone posted a funny meme today that said, let's play a game. 
open the Bible to a random passage and do exactly what it says. The last one to go to jail wins. So that's the level of discussion, humor, funny, and snark that you'll get in the group. So we'd love to see you there. Yeah. Absolutely. And hey, if you love the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and you know, who can blame you? It is pretty sweet. Um, you can join us over on patreon.com and support your favorite podcast, uh, the Heretic Happy Hour. And um, if you do, first of all, you and our undying love, uh, we will provide indulgences for you, uh, completely absolve you of all your sins. Um, and there are different levels. So there's a $2 level where you get bonus content, bonus interviews, things like that. Uh, there's a $10 level where you'll get PDFs of our books. Uh, $25 a month, you'll get uh, access to quarterly Zoom calls and other goodies, all the way up to $100. And man, we listen, if you want to do that, we will make you the heretic of the week right here on this podcast. And don't, don't say we won't because we're not kidding. We would really do it. Um, but we want to also just say for those of you who do support us on Patreon already, mwah, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You make this all possible and you make this a lot of fun. A thousand kisses from Keith is never too much. Ooh, yeah. I just don't want to stop. Whew. Sorry, bad, yeah. bad Luther Vandross impression. But if you like the Heretic Happy Hour and if you like listening to us, we highly encourage and beseech you to give us a five-star rating on iTunes because if you do, your talents will be multiplied and you'll hear from the master. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But if you don't, you will be cast out into outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Damn it. <laughs> you don't want that. Trust me, kids. Someone get this man an organ. Can someone gnash their teeth right now? <laughs> just, I hear clicking like zombies. <laughs> you know, I, I think I did that and, and actually fractured a tooth. <laughs> Be careful.